2: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jonathan White about his new book, To Address You as My Friend, African American's Letters to Abraham Lincoln. Dr. Jonathan White, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, Dr. White, I I wonder if you could begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I actually grew up in a farmhouse from the 1720s. And as a kid, I dug up all sorts of old junk in the backyard. And that's what got me interested in history. I went to Penn State where I started as a business major, but very quickly decided I wanted to do history instead. And so I switched and never looked back. I studied under some great scholars there, Bill Blair and Mark Neely and Wilson Moses and others. And then I went on to the University of Maryland for graduate work where I worked with great people like Ira Berlin, Herman Bells, Leslie Rowland. Awesome, wonderful. Well, getting
2: into this book, uh, how did you come to this project?
0: It's interesting. I've tried to remember. I know I started collecting letters from African Americans to Lincoln around 2014, but I don't remember what got me collecting them. I I must have just stumbled upon a few and thought, wow, these are really interesting, and then maybe just started to look for more and more. And so by 2016, I had collected scores of these letters, and I wanted to do a book called Emphatically the Black Man's President, which is a, a quote from Frederick Douglass, and then the subtitle was going to be something like African-American Correspondence and Conversations with Abraham Lincoln, and I had a number of letters, and then I also had a number of moments where Black men and women went to the White House and met with Abraham Lincoln and, and conversed with him, and so I by 2016, I, I had put this sort of collection together of letters and then primary source documents of conversations But I very quickly realized that I had way too much for one book. And so I broke it into two. And in the past year, I published this book to address you as my friend, which consists of about 125 letters from black men and women to Lincoln. And then I wrote a separate book called uh, A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House. And then that tells the stories of the black men and women who actually met with Lincoln. There's a little bit of overlap between the two, because in some cases, people came to the White House and actually personally delivered letters to Lincoln. But for the most part, they tell different stories. But there are some common themes. And I think they show that for the first time in the history of this country, African-Americans believe they had a president in the White House who was concerned with what concerned them. That's something they hadn't encountered in the first you know, four score and seven years of the nation's history. And so this book
2: is divided into three parts. Um, Could you explain the focus of each part to us?
0: Yeah, I I actually struggled a lot with how to organize the letters to Lincoln, and I went through several different schemes of organization. And originally I had thought, well, I'm going to organize them according to the type of sender. And so I, I had ministers and, you know, women and... African-Americans who were enslaved and free soldiers, all sorts of different, you know, types of senders. And I realized that that led to a sort of disjointed nature because of the book because you had some topics that would appear very scattered throughout the book. And I, I was talking to someone. I can't, I, it might have been in a peer review actually, now that I think about it. And someone suggested, why don't you organize it according to the roles that Lincoln played? And so I, I ended up thinking about Lincoln as chief executive. So he's sort of the head of the federal bureaucracy, the chief policymaker for the executive branch, and then commander in chief. He's the head of the armed forces. And then a concept of chief citizen that he's sort of the, the, people, the person people look to as the head, sort of the symbolic head of the nation. And as I thought about it that way, the letters began to make more sense organizationally. And so I, I then broke them into subchapters of why do people write to Lincoln? Well, they petition him for certain reasons and they fall under these sort of headings of chief executive, commander in chief or chief citizen.
2: And chapter two actually marks a departure from the sort of normal organization of the rest of the book and focuses on colonization. Uh, So why did you make this departure? And what do the letters presented in this chapter show about the views on immigration among African-Americans and Lincoln as representatives?
0: Yeah, colonization is one of these things that was very controversial at the time and is still very controversial today to think about this idea that Lincoln and many other white Americans and some African Americans, but it was much more popular among white Americans. The idea that black people and white people aren't going to be able to live together in peace if slavery ends and many lower class white Americans don't want labor competition from freed people when they become free And so they said, well, why don't we send African-Americans somewhere else? We can send them to Africa. We can send them to Haiti or to Panama. They'll be better suited there. And to his discredit, I think Lincoln adhered to this idea and he adhered to it well into the war years. And, you know, he was pushing it, I think, for a couple of reasons. The primary reason I think he was pushing it was to try to appeal to a racist white northern electorate who was willing to fight in a war for union, but not willing to fight for emancipation. And so Lincoln basically says to white Northerners look, if emancipation comes, don't worry about it, because I'll try to convince black leaders to lead black people out of this country. And so this was a very hotly debated topic for the first couple of years of the war. And many people are writing to Lincoln, pushing him on colonization, either saying you should do this or you should not do this. Many people meet with Lincoln to discuss colonization. And as I was thinking about the chapters of the book, most of the chapters present letters in their own little unit. So I'll give a head note and then a letter and then maybe a a follow up on what happened after the fact. And originally I wrote the colonization chapter that way, but then I began to think, there's, so, there's a much more cohesive narrative flow to the colonization debate from the beginning of the war throughout the war. And so I wanted to present the letters and petitions in a narrative form. And so I sort of mix my own prose with with the petitions themselves. And you get a sense of African-Americans who supported colonization because there were a, a minority of Black people who did support colonization, including people like Frederick Douglass, one of Frederick Douglass' sons, on the other hand, I think most black Americans said, no, this is our country. We don't want to be sent somewhere else. We just want equality here. And so they issue a number of public statements and letters addressed to Lincoln saying, making these arguments, don't, don't send us elsewhere, just give us rights here in America. And the chapter, I hope, gives that sense of the ebb and flow of the debate among black and white Americans, but primarily among African Americans.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think that it does. Uh, and so part two of your book shows us African Americans reign to Lincoln in his role as commander in chief. Uh, can you take us through a few of those letters and what they tell us about African Americans perspectives of military service?
0: Yeah, so that part has four chapters. And the first one looks at what it what it looked like for black men to be recruited into the ranks. The second chapter looks at the issue of unequal pay. So black men enlist, expecting to be paid the same amount as white soldiers, and then they find out they're going to be paid as laborers instead. So they enlist expecting thirteen dollars a month. Instead they only get ten dollars a month. And then on top of that, laborers had a three dollar clothing allowance deducted from their pay. So they are really only getting seven dollars a month. And this this infuriates them, rightfully so, and they petitioned Lincoln calling for equal pay. And then the third chapter looks at what it looked like for soldiers to leave the army. And then the fourth chapter in this section looks at the military justice system, what it looked like when black men were court-martialed. And so the voices in these letters, I think, are really remarkable. On the one hand, in the chapter on recruiting for the ranks, you see the nefarious schemes that recruiters sometimes use to coerce men into the army. And this happened to white soldiers as well as black soldiers, but it really has a profound effect when you read black men writing about being forced into the army, because for many of these men, they have escaped from slavery or they know the slave system intimately and they liken being forced into the army as as kidnapping. You know, kidnapping in the north was a major problem before the Civil War. There's incredible work on this by scholars like Rick Bell. And and so for these guys, they're saying, "Look, this is like the slave system if you're going to force us into the army and they write to Lincoln and say we should be released." On the issue of unequal pay, you have black men asserting their rights, saying Bullets do not discriminate on account of the color of our skin. If we are in the front lines and a Confederate is shooting, the bullet doesn't know the difference between a white soldier and a black soldier. And for that reason, we deserve full equal pay. And they talk about the suffering of their families. And you see a really intimate picture into Black family life when Black wives write to Lincoln and they say, we are suffering. We can't feed our children because our husbands are not getting the pay they deserve. The issue uh, navigating navigating military justice, I think, is also really fascinating because you see soldiers who are court-martialed and they, they turn to Lincoln for justice. They believe they've been wrongly convicted or they admit that they've done something wrong. They say maybe they didn't know it was wrong or they... You know, they'll they'll reform their ways. And so they turn to Lincoln. And in many cases, Lincoln pardons or uh, grants some sort of reprieve, not in all, as he didn't in all cases for white soldiers either. But in all of these letters, you have soldiers and their wives and their parents looking to Lincoln for justice, whether it's justice in how they were recruited or wanting a discharge or justice in wanting equal pay or justice in, I've been wrongly convicted of a crime, they, they hope that Lincoln will hear their pleas and respond. And part four
2: looks at letters that President Lincoln received from African Americans in his role as uh, chief citizen. Uh, in this section, we see African Americans writing to Lincoln in hopes of bettering their conditions as citizens. Uh, what do we learn about race relations and how African Americans conceptualize citizenship from these letters?
0: A big part of it, I think, is they want equal treatment under the law. And so they write to Lincoln when they are facing injustices. Many of these letters come from the South. And so these are freed people who are being ripped off by Northerners who've moved into the South and maybe bought up land and are are trying to profit off the freed people. And they write to Lincoln about how they have worked this land for years they should be allowed to continue to work it, and they should be allowed to to profit from it and not be ripped off by these Northern investors who are just coming in. You find Christian ministers who write to Lincoln and they say, we want to do mission work. Will you support us in this kind of work? And they call for federal funds to help support their work educating the freed people. And then some of the, I think the most touching letters are in the last chapter of that section. It's a chapter I called Mementos. And these are letters that were sent to Lincoln thanking him for emancipation. Or they are soldiers who are very proud of the fact that they're learning how to read, and they want Lincoln to know that. So one of the letters was from a guy named Hannibal Cox. And Hannibal Cox had been born into slavery outside of Richmond, Virginia. He at some point escaped into Union lines and became a regiment, uh, became a, a soldier in a U.S. Colored Troops regiment. And he wrote a letter to Lincoln describing how. In slavery, he had not been aler- allowed to learn how to read, but as a soldier now, he's serving his country, and he's learning how to read and write. And he copied poem a, a poem out of Harper's Weekly newspaper about the flag, and he wrote it to Lincoln, but the most touching part of the letter is a postscript at the very end where he writes, I send this for you to look at, you must not laugh at it. And I think it's so meaningful because here's a guy who had been denied the right to know how to read. But now he was serving his country and he was so proud of his service and so proud of the fact that he was now literate that he wanted the commander in chief of the Union Army to know this. But he also understood that his penmanship might not be perfect. He might have spelling and grammatical and punctuation errors. And he knew that human beings have a natural inclination to just laugh if they see someone make a silly mistake. And so he, he feared that Lincoln might look at this letter and laugh at it. And I have to believe that Lincoln did not laugh when he saw this letter, and I have to believe that this letter was very meaningful for Lincoln. And the reason I believe that is most of the letters that Lincoln received were sent out through the federal bureaucracy and are now housed in a record group at the National Archive, depending on where they went, what department or agency they went to. But the letters that meant the most to Lincoln remained in his personal collection, which is now housed at the Library of Congress. And Hannibal Cox's letter is one of about 20 or 21 letters from African-Americans to Lincoln that are in his private collection of papers. And, and so when, I think when Lincoln read this, he was moved by it and thought, this is one of the letters I want to keep. And so these are the kind of letters that you have in the chief citizen uh, collection uh, or part of the book where they're either asking Lincoln for equality or they're showing Lincoln we are we are grateful for what you're doing and and we want to be treated as citizens.
2: And so you you mentioned there a couple archives where these letters are housed and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the process of which you went through of finding these letters uh you have a an entire section that sort of talks about your your methodology I wonder if you could just share that with us a little bit.
0: Yeah, so some of them I found when I was doing work at the National Archives. About a hundred of the letters are from the National Archives, and so some of the court martial letters in Part Two were ones where I was researching African Americans who'd been court martialed, and I wow, there's a letter to Abraham Lincoln here, and that. But most of them I actually found through a digitization project called the Papers of Abraham Lincoln. This is a this is an outfit in Springfield, Illinois. It's housed out of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. And they are trying to digitize every document that was either sent to or uh, by Abraham Lincoln or just papers he m- that might have passed through his hands at some point. And as part of the grants that they've received, they have to put anything from the National Archives and the Library of Congress online. And these are organized by record group. So record groups at the National Archives are there's a different record group for every federal agency or bureaucracy bureaucratic organization or department. So there are multiple record groups for the Department of Justice or the Department of State. And on the papers of Abraham Lincoln website, all these documents sent to or from Lincoln are organized by record group. And so what I did was I thought, well, what are the record groups that would be most likely to have letters from African-Americans? And then I just went online and I just document by document, just scrolled through and looked for letters that I thought might be from a black man or woman. And this was a painstaking process where, I mean, I, I spent years doing it. But it ended up bearing incredible fruit. The the section I'm actually most proud of in the book is chapter one on petitioning Lincoln for pardon, because I don't think that scholars of African-American history have made enough use of pardon records. So Lincoln, as president, had the authority to pardon anyone convicted of a federal crime or anyone convicted of a crime in Washington, D.C., And so I I looked through thousands of documents and found dozens involving African-Americans. And then a number of those cases had letters from black people to Lincoln. And these give an incredible picture of black social life in the nation's capital during the Civil War, where you have men and women writing to Lincoln, I've been convicted of this crime, or in one case, I was a victim of a crime and describing it to Lincoln. And you get a sense of what was it like in the homes and the shops of Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. And in a number of cases, Lincoln chose to pardon.
2: Yeah, in that chapter, I think one of the ones that sticks out to me is a mutiny that sort of takes place. Uh, the, which one? I'm sorry. The the mutiny that takes place on the yeah. ship, um, which is in it's it really sort of had me sit up in my seat when I was reading that part. Uh, yeah,
0: any crime on the high seas was a federal crime, and so Link, there there's a mutiny that Lincoln deals with where, you know, these guys are sick. And they're, they're black men who are working on a ship and the ship captain just threatens to kill them and, and bludgeons one of them. And it just treats them terribly. And these guys are just sick, but he, you know, calls them out and eventually he accuses them of mutiny, which they didn't even do. And they wind up getting convicted and sentenced. A a number of them were, I think nine of them were convicted and some of them got one year in prison. Some got three years in prison. And they petitioned Lincoln. And sadly, my recollection of that case was that the when that letter came in, Lincoln's clerks mistakenly thought it was a U.S. Navy ship. And so it got channeled to the Navy Department and then never dealt with. So Lincoln didn't pardon these guys. It, it just shouldn't have gone that way through the bureaucracy. I mean, Lincoln never saw the letter. And unfortunately, they, they stayed in prison. Um, but yeah, you, again you get these incredible stories out of the um, out of these petitions.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to Shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Absolutely. Um, and so you, you write early in the book too, that uh, in one instance here, you include three lengthy reactions to an event mentioned in a letter, which you believe will lend themselves well to classroom discussions. Uh, what is the event that you're speaking of? Uh, and how do you envision that these classroom discussions around these reactions could take place?
0: Yeah. One of my hopes is that this book will find use in high school and college classrooms. Having these voices um, is a very rare thing. I mean, oftentimes to get African-American voices from the 19th century, it's a white person who overheard a conversation and then writes down what they heard or think they heard or perceived that they heard. And so it's it's very unusual to have Black men and women writing in their own hands. And so my hope is that all of the letters will be useful in classroom discussion. For the most part, I just presented the letters with a little bit of annotation to give people context. But in this one moment, the white reaction was so strong that I thought it makes sense to present these together. And so what happened was in in the summer of 1864... A black religious group, I, I'm trying to think, it was black Catholics first and then black Baptists second, I believe. A, a group of black Catholics went to Lincoln and said, you know, can we have a picnic on the White House lawn because we'd like to raise money for a church? They were meeting in the basement of a white church and they wanted their own building. And Lincoln gives them the, the permission to do this. And actually, the man who led this effort was a guy named Gabriel Coakley, who was a, an important religious leader, black religious leader in Washington at the time. And his, he, his family became free as a result of the D.C. Emancipation Act in 1862. And one of his descendants was an official in the Obama administration. So it's, there's kind of a cool D.C. lineage there. And so Gabriel Coakley gets permission from Lincoln to have this, this event. And then the black Baptists of D.C. say, hey, we should do this too. And so they go to Lincoln a month later and say, can we do this? And Lincoln gives permission. And they have a big festival on the, the White House grounds to raise money for their religious purposes. And the day of the second meet, the, fest, the second festival in August of 1864 was a day that Lincoln set aside for a national day of fasting and prayer. And so you see in the white press a very strong reaction to this moment where they say, we should be fasting and praying. This isn't a day for celebration. And, hey, white people have never been allowed to do this, and now black people are allowed to do this. Lincoln is putting African Americans above white Americans. And so they are outraged by this moment. And I think it's a very instructive moment because you see – for African-Americans, they see hope on the horizon that that maybe the war will bring something better. For white Americans, they see only pain and suffering. They're not necessarily supportive of emancipation. And they say, wait a second, this is turning the races upside down. We should be superior. They should be inferior. And so they're outraged. And my hope is that when, when students read the, the petitions to Lincoln calling for the, you know, will you give us this privilege to be able to better ourselves? And then the white reaction, I think it'll be very instructive about what race relations looked like and how white Americans perceived the changes in um, what was going on during the Civil War in, in a way that, you know, in hindsight, we see it's, it's, it's not what they perceived, but that was their perception. And I think it'll lead to, I hope it'll lead to interesting discussions for students.
2: And so I wonder of, of all the letters that you've compiled in this work, uh, do you have a favorite? And uh, if so, why is it your favorite? And what does it say about race relations in the 19th century?
0: Yeah, I have a few. 20 of the letters were written by women, 21 I think. And some of them are the most powerful letters because these are oftentimes wives of soldiers who are suffering or relatives of soldiers who maybe don't know where their husband or brother is and so they write to Lincoln and they say, you know, do you, do you know where he is? And and I think it's telling that they have they've tried everything else and they have nowhere left to turn. And so they write to Lincoln. One of them is very famous. It's a a letter by a woman named Annie Davis. She was enslaved in Maryland. This letter was actually discovered by one of my mentors, Ira Berlin and the Freedmen and Southern Society Project at the University of Maryland. And Ira Berlin found that, or he or one of his team members found this in the 80s, where Annie Davis was enslaved in Maryland. She wanted to visit her relatives on the Eastern shore. It was August of 1864. Maryland still had slavery at that point. And her mistress would not allow her to do this. And so what does she do? She writes to Abraham Lincoln and says, am I free? Can I go visit my kin? And in that moment, she was not yet free. What she didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that Lincoln was working behind the scenes to, to eventually bring freedom into the state of Maryland. And she, Annie Davis would become free a few months later on November 1st, 1864. But it's this really incredible, very short letter that a woman writes to Lincoln with a very simple question, am I free? But if I had to pick my favorite, it's, it was written by a woman named Lizzie Shorter. And I've actually done a lot more research on Lizzie Shorter since the book came out. And I've discovered that Lizzie Shorter was enslaved in Washington, D.C., and she became free as a result of the D.C. Emancipation Act in 1862. And I didn't know that about her when I wrote the book. She began working for a man named Frank Pruitt. He was a shoemaker in the city in D.C., And she was working for Pruitt and Pruitt's wife was pregnant. And one night Pruitt comes into his store and Lizzie is, she's about 18 or 20 years old and she's trying, getting ready for bed and it's dark and she's on the couch, on the sofa in his shop. And he comes in and he says, I want to sleep with you. And she tries to force him away and and he persists and she becomes pregnant. This happened several times. We don't know how many times she becomes pregnant. And, So his wife has a baby and then Lizzie Shorter has a baby right around the same time. And he tries to force her out of the house and she insists, you've got to support my child. And, you know, he he doesn't want to do that. And so one day she decides to force the issue and she goes into his bedroom and his wife is there with her child. And she comes in and she says, you said you would support me and you won't do it. And he gets furious and he threatens to shoot her and his wife stops him and then he lunges out of bed and he grabs her by the the neck and goes to choke her and shoves her against the wall and force and his wife somehow stops him and he forces her out of the house. Well, Lizzie came back later that day for some to get her her belongings. And when she came back, Frank Pruitt's wife said, "Here's some silver, here's some money." And the condition is don't tell anyone what my husband did to you. Well, Lizzie was not going to allow this to stand. And so the next day she goes to court and it takes her several judges, but she finally finds a judge who's willing to issue a warrant against Frank Pruitt for what he had done to her. And he retaliates by claiming that she stole the money his wife gave her. And he has her arrested for larceny. And at some point around the time she gets arrested, her baby dies. Well, Frank Pruitt goes to trial for for what he had done to Lizzie Shorter, and he is acquitted. And then in the fall of 1864, Lizzie Shorter goes to trial for grand larceny, and she is convicted. Well, it's October of 1864, she's convicted, and a few weeks later, she is sentenced to one year in prison at labor uh, at the Albany Penitentiary. And here is this woman who has just faced extraordinary injustice. She has been sexually assaulted. She's been wrongly accused of stealing. She is then convicted of that, and her baby dies, and now she's going to have to spend a year in prison. And with nowhere left to turn, she writes to Abraham Lincoln. And so she writes to Lincoln around November 3rd or 4th, and he gets the letter within about a day, and the very next day, Lincoln pardons her. And I just think it's this extraordinary moment where, again, you have a young woman who has faced so much injustice in her life with nowhere left to turn. She believes that the president of the United States might actually be concerned with her welfare. And so she, she goes to him. And I think it's probably the fastest presidential pardon in Lincoln's entire presidency, because it's basically a day from when he receives the letter until when he pardons her. She can't even make it to New York to to face prison. He does it so fast. And making it all the more remarkable is that three days later, Lincoln is up for reelection. And so you can imagine how busy his White House is in that moment. And yet he takes time out of his day to bring justice to a woman who he'll never meet but he knows she's been wronged. And so if I had to think of my favorite letter, I mean, it's such a tragic story, but it is such an, a compelling one that um, she finally gets the justice she's owed. And you, you write
2: in the introduction that these 120 plus letters from ordinary African-Americans reveal a great deal about race relations in the mid 19th century. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit Bit, a little bit about exactly what they reveal about race relations in the 19th century
0: yeah i think a number of them they give you a sense of what ordinary interactions were like between white and black people so in one letter one of the most curious you've got a guy from just outside of philadelphia who writes to lincoln he had been mistreated he was having some land disputes and he was not being fairly treated by the government and he needed a lawyer and so you get a sense of the mistreatment he's facing through his letter, and he writes to Lincoln, addressing him, I think, as like a Lincoln Esquire, basically like, "Hey, will you represent me in this case?" And obviously, Lincoln was too busy for uh, taking a case at that at that time. He probably wasn't on the bar in Delaware, or Pennsylvania, anyway. Um, you get a sense of, especially in the military letters, the the relationships that were developed developing between white and black soldiers. So black regiments almost invariably had white officers. And so you often, you see where black men feel that they are not being treated fairly, or maybe they have an officer who isn't an officer in a black regiment because they are racial egalitarian. They're doing it because they want to be an officer and they want the officers pay and they treat black soldiers very poorly. And so those kind of relationships come out in the petitions to Abraham Lincoln. Um, And a lot of the letters on the home front, I think also give you a sense of, of, ordinary exchanges that went on between white and black people. So there was one black man who was arrested because he gave whiskey to a soldier. And he didn't know in Washington, D.C., you weren't allowed to give whiskey to soldiers. And so he gets arrested for it. And he writes to Lincoln. He says, look, I didn't know I couldn't do this in any way. If a white man told me I needed to do this, then I felt compelled I had to do it so that I wouldn't face greater repercussions. And um, so those sort of interactions come out in the letters.
2: And what sort of audience did you imagine for this work?
0: I, My, my main audience, I hope, will be People who, students who are interested in African American history, Civil War history. I hope they'll get that this book will be, get used in college and high school classrooms. You know, when I teach at Christopher Newport University, I should have said this before when you asked me about my background. I, I'm a professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University, which is in the Tidewater region of Virginia. I almost, almost all of the readings I assign are primary sources because I want my students to dig into what we sometimes call the stuff of history. I I want them to read the primary documents and get the voices of the historical actors and be able to interpret and think about them on their own without, you know, the secondary literature that Says, well, here's an interpretation of it. And so, obviously, when I teach or when I write, I have my own interpretation and and I bring that to the classroom. But I, I love being able to give students a document and just say, what do you think of this? What does this tell us about life 160 years ago? And some of the letters can be hard to understand because, in some cases, the spelling is phonetic. And I occasionally would bracket in words where if I if I thought I knew what the writer was saying, but it's not entirely clear. I would say, I would bracket in. Okay, this is what I think they're saying. Um, but for the most part, I think that I think that students will be able to read and and grapple with these. And I'll I'll say this: I did a a workshop using this book for a, a another university, and there was an African American student who was part of the the workshop and he had encountered problems in a business where he started a business and he found that other white business people in the area where he was just wanted to crush him and and snuff out his business and so we're we're in this workshop talking about these letters and he broke down just utterly broke down in tears and he i didn't know it in the moment what the issue was and he he had to get up and leave and he walked out and he was out for about 10 minutes and eventually he came back in and he then explained to the group and he was the only black person in this group of, of students and and he told us his story and he said as i was reading these letters I just connected with them in a way that I didn't expect to. And he told us a story of his business. And then he said, you know, when I was reading these letters about the financial hardship that these African-American families were going through 160 years ago, he said it, it just resonated with me. And he just had this outpouring of emotion. And as a scholar, as a white scholar, like I find these letters so compelling, but I've never interacted with them in that way. And it was so moving for me to see his interaction with the letters. And I think that students can have that sort of interaction with these letters. And at the end of the workshop, he said, "Can I give you a hug?" And I was like, "Yeah, man." And we we get, had this like big hug and, you know, I signed his book for him and he was just so touched by him and I was so touched by this. And and my hope is that that people who read these letters will will see the humanity of the writers and will realize in a way that this student did these are real human beings. I think so often when we read historical documents, we're just like, oh, these are just words on a page. We forget that someone actually sat down and dipped a pen in an inkwell and, and scratched out these letters. And, and I think when, when students can see that and see the humanity of the letters, they can really get something meaningful out of them. Absolutely. And
2: well, Dr. White, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so I'll ask one final question. What are you working on now?
0: Well, it's a great question. I've got three books that are going to come out this calendar year, though I'll just talk about two of them. Uh, One of them is a collection of essays on grave sites during the Civil War. I edited it with a guy named Brian Jordan, who is a professor at Sam Houston State University, and we found twenty-nine scholars who each picked a grave that was meaningful to them and wrote a short essay about three or four thousand words about their personal interaction with it. And so we have people like David Blight, Alan Gelzo, Hillary Jones, or Hillary Green. Um, Michelle Crowell. She wrote about one of my favorites, Elizabeth Keckley's grave. Elizabeth Keckley was the seamstress in the Lincoln White House, and her grave was destroyed to build the Rhode Island Island Avenue metro station in Washington, D.C. And then it wasn't until about 15, 20 years ago that she finally got a new grave marker at a black cemetery in Maryland. And so each of these authors picked a grave site that was meaningful to them and wrote about their personal sort of journey and understanding the grave and why it's why it's special to them. So I'm very excited about about that collection. And then in the fall, I'm going to publish a biography of a man who was convicted of slave trading or convicted of outfitting ships for the slave trade. And I use his story, his name was Appleton Oaksmith, and I use his story as a lens to understand the lengths that the Lincoln administration went to destroy the illegal transatlantic slave trade. The slave trade had been illegal since 1808, it had been declared piracy in 1820, and yet Everyone turned a blind eye to it and, until Lincoln came into office. And so it's it's a book I'm, I'm really excited to have come out because it's going to show, you know, Lincoln actually violated international law in an attempt to destroy the slave trade. And it's a story that has never been known before. So I'm doing the finishing touches on those two books and I'm very excited. The Graves book comes out in August and then the the Oaksmith biography in September. So it'll be a, a fun fall for me.
2: Wonderful. Well, I I will definitely look look out for that. I'm sure others will as well. Uh, And those sound like wonderful projects as well. Uh, So Dr. Jonathan Way, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Uh, And take care. Yeah, thank you again for having me.